Welcome back to Wake Up. I'm Marilee Albert, and here in the studio, I have... You're not doing it right. Let me do it for you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Wake Up Podcast, featuring Marilee Albert and your guest, Mr. Jeff Watson. All right, now you can introduce that guy. Okay. Oh, shall I? I think you should. Yeah. And the special, special guest we have here today is a good human being, a straight-up mensch, a good guy named Mr. Michael Lee Simpson. Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. And today we are going to hear a little bit about your story. And I was thinking that we could then segue to a little chat about stuff that you guys may have some thoughts on addiction and recovery and share with us some of your story, too. Yeah. Along with Michael. 100%. I I don't have to talk much because I've got Jeff here. Sorry. Are you going to give me a break and talk for me, please? (laughs) Jeff knows I don't like to talk. I'm just kidding. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so Michael, would you like to um, tell us a little bit about how you met Jeff or tell us about your story? Tell us about anything about yourself that you want to share. Give us a story. Give us a story, um, Michael. It would better be good. (laughs) I want a good story. Well, I I actually met Jeff at a treatment center called The Refuge. Uh, That was in 2014. We had met there. I think I was there for four months. I don't know how long he was there, but I think we kind of uh, crossed paths for about a month there. And we stayed in touch over the years, off and on. And he read a couple of my screenplays there. We had kind of an argument about like the, what was that? Robert. Robert (laughs) What? Yeah. Allow me to jump in and add the color. So yeah, sure enough, we were completely obsessed. So at this place, there was no phones. Right. Oh, God. so which is a good point because you got to focus on what you're working on and all that. But because of that, he and I dorked out on movies. Like the second I met this guy, <laughs> I was like, "You're a geek. I am a geek as well." So we're going through all these, you know, Taxi Driver and just all these old <laughs> Shining, all these movies. But we got incredibly hung up on the Robert Rodriguez name of his studio. Of his whole complex, right? And Robert Rodriguez, the director, you know, mm-hmm. he's done a lot of right in Texas. Bingo. So Michael and I were completely obsessed for like thirty days because you couldn't see what it was. Oh, you couldn't Google it. Nothing. But what about what about asking other people there? Someone snuck a phone in, one of my friends, and then I looked it up and we were on the porch. I think we were smoking cigarettes and then I went inside and I, I looked it up at uh, inside of his cabin, I looked it up and I showed it to him. That's right. And who was right? What was the name? We didn't I was. It was Troublemaker Studios. And what did he say? What did Jeff say it wait, was? Wait, wait, wait. Don't reinvent history, pal. <laughs> you did not say that it was Troublemaker Studios. You were as baffled as I was. You're rewriting all this stuff now. Congratulations. Wait, 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 wait. Who, who, who? I don't know why you say sure that. He's sure that he's right. I think we should go back and get the tapes. So you met it at the refuge. You're going to tell me what the refuge is? It sounds kind of intriguing. So there are a lot of rehabs out there that they're like 12-step based. They're kind of shame based. Meaning like they're really hard on you. They'll yell at you. They'll, I mean, not really necessarily always yell at you, but they're just really hard on you. Jeff's been to a treatment center like that. So he knows what I'm talking about. The refuge is different in the sense that like when I say 12 step treatment center, I mean, like a lot of times it's, they're based on the 12 steps, meaning like, you know, you go there, you, you work the 12 steps there. A lot of times with the case manager who's quote your sponsor, but sponsor is someone you're supposed to trust. But if you have a case manager, that's telling 
you know, the staff during clinical meetings, everything you're saying, you're not going to really go through the steps and do it the right way. And the refuge stays away from working the steps there, but they encourage you to go to meetings and they'll take you off property to meetings. But another thing about that treatment center, it has changed quite a bit since the KDO, this corporation took over and the transition started happening when we were, I think it was right after Jeff and I were there in 2014. I went back again later and it was quite a bit different. Basically the whole point of the refuge isn't to treat addiction is to treat trauma. So the trauma, it, a lot of people, they think, well, if he just has a drug problem then, or a drinking problem or whatever, then you get off the drugs and then throw them into a 12-step meeting and everything will be okay. But if you treat like the underlying cause, which is a lot of years of trauma through childhood trauma, a lot of people gone through there have been raped and molested and now a lot of horrible things that have gone on. Like there were some really bad eye-opening stories there. Jeff's was one of them. I was in uh, one of his groups and I think he was there a couple of years after his wife had committed suicide. Uh, he had been sober for a couple of years. So you go, you have like two groups a day, morning group, afternoon group, but then they offer like yoga and meditation. The thing about the refuge is I feel like I'm plugging that treatment center, but it really saved my life. I can get into a little bit of my story later, but it's a place where you go and the refuge is called the refuge, a healing place. And it's, it gets into the underlying trauma. Like you do breath work there. Also, it's where you lay down and you breathe really hard for like 45 minutes. And then you have someone that watches over you and then you can have flashbacks to your childhood, stuff that you don't remember, stuff that you've repressed. It's harder in the beginning when you're going through withdrawal and they're giving you medications to come off of whether it's opiates or uh, opiates and alcohol are the two main ones and benzos that you get physically dependent on. And that's another part of my story with prescription drugs. Anyway, Jeff, do you have anything to add? Well, he's exactly right. This place, The Refuge, is one of the only places, one of the best places that did trauma and addiction, right? It's not super common. <laughs> Fortunately, not really. Co-occurring. Co- I mean, they say they would. Yeah. You know, we're trauma-informed. Everyone right. is trauma-informed these right. days. It's not the right. thing, right? They have right. no idea. I shouldn't say they have no idea. But what I will say is that this place was great about hiring people who understood trauma and, more importantly, understood that addiction is usually a symptomatic of trauma. And it really opened my eyes to what trauma actually meant. I didn't know what trauma was, even though I had experienced it a year before. I didn't know what the word really meant. I didn't know what PTSD was. I thought that was just for veterans, like everybody else does. And I, I minimized my trauma, which we many of us do, and then that manifested in addiction. It manifests in gambling. It manifests just all kinds of things. And the thing that I often talk about is that I call it my geyser theory. The geyser theory is simply that when you have all this unprocessed trauma, anger, resentment, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. it's under the ground. Like Old Faithful, it just, mm-hmm. it's just going to pop off somewhere. And you're going to say, where did that come from? And then it's going to pop off someplace else. You have no idea where it comes from. So it's that kind of repression of the emotion and the repression Mm. of the trauma. And that place allowed me to understand how to process Mm. and carry through trauma. I agree. They had taught a class there about trauma where it's actually stored in the body. I don't know if it's a nerve or there's a certain part of your body where it gets stored, like something could have happened to you when you were four or five. And even if you're, you repress it, meaning it was so traumatic that you don't remember it. And that's a whole another thing like repressed memory, but then it's still stored in you. So you're still carrying it around. So a lot of times people get addicted to drugs and alcohol, not really knowing, feeling miserable their whole life and not really knowing why. But then when like an opiate comes along or something and 
and it makes everything okay all of a sudden. And mm-hmm. the stigma with addiction, unfortunately, is it's a disease just like diabetes, just like mm-hmm. uh, anything else. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it like it manifests itself in bad behavior, though. So I, I do see a point in people that they have a hard time like if, with addicts. If an addict steals their car or steals their own medication or whatever, I mean, I would be angry too. But, you know, at the same time, like that gets into the whole uh, disease model. It's not really a model. I don't believe it's a model. I think it's a fact where, you know, heart disease, they're like, well, it's a, a dis-. some people are like, well, it's a disease of choice. But if someone's eating, you know, three or four hamburgers a day for 20 years, and then they get heart disease, you know, they still offer the same treatment. They still like say, well, no, that's still a disease. I had an ex-girlfriend that there was something on TV. It was about, there was like a debate about how insulin shots, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it was like insulin shots, you have to pay for that, but like Narcan, so you don't. And that's, she was saying something along the lines of that's ridiculous. I mean, addicts are, you know, basically, she didn't say it like this, but lower level than people that have heart disease or, you know, or diabetes. I mean, and I don't agree with that. Like, I think, I mean, I think both should be free, but, you know, at the same time, that still ties into the stigma of just like people, I mean, in maybe like 50 years or so people, it'll be people that are bashing people with a disease of addiction. They'll look at it as being racist or, you know, against, I know we're still with the LGBT community, there's a lot of debate out there about that too. But I'm hoping like anyone that's in that, those minority groups, including addiction will be like recognized and they need to be like supported rather than just, oh, he's a drug addict. He's, you know, he lives under a bridge and he could have done so much better, which is true. He could have done better, but at the same time, it needs to be treated like an actual disease rather than just, you know, shamed and... Well, we we agree. Jeff and I agree. We, we talked about that on your podcast. A hundred percent. I could not agree with you more, Michael. No, and you know, but also too, and, and to kind of follow up with what Michael's saying, mm-hmm. is that when you have cancer and you have a lesion on your arm, you say, oh, that is cancer. I see a leisure mm-hmm. or a, a lesion. Mm-hmm. And you make the identification. Mm-hmm. With mental illness, I often say that the lesion is inside the skull. But even when the cancer is inside the skull, they treat it differently. Look, even when the cancer, they look at the x-ray and they say, oh, look, there's a little lump in there. Michael's right. You're right. The diseases of the brain, addiction, mental illness, and the treatments, huh? that they're not moral failings. Addiction is not a moral failing. Like you said, the guy under the bridge, that's a symptom of an illness. Yeah, it's not a moral failing to Mm -mm. have addiction. Mm -mm. That doesn't excuse the behavior. But at the same time, when you're working through the 12 steps, when you have a sponsor, you're going through all the steps. Like first you admit you're powerless and then eventually you get to give your life and care over to the power greater than yourself. Like if you're understanding, a lot of people get hung up on, well, I don't know if there's a God, if they're agnostic atheist, but it can be anything. It could be the universe. It can be um, nature. It, can be, it doesn't have to be the Christian God. And moving past that, when you get to the ninth step, when you're making amends, every sponsor is different. And this ties into the whole having to be accountable for your actions. You call someone or you meet with someone or send them a letter and you say, I owe you an amends. Uh, you're careful not to use the word, I'm sorry. And then you say, what can I, I'm sober for however long, and then what can I do to make it better? And uh, a lot of times, like, you know, the other person will, will say, well, I've, I was wrong too in a lot of ways. And I mean, every now and then you'll have someone say, well, you know, well, what about this? You did this, 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 and this too. But part of the program is not to fight back or argue and what? just kind of go with it. Sometimes that's kind of tough. But Yeah, I'll say. That's yeah. tough. That's tough. 
additionally. Additionally to giving up all these heavy narcotics, you have to also be have the patience of saints. Well, that's intense. Well, you know, here's what I'll say about just recovery in general, mm-hmm. right? Is this mm-hmm. just independent of any any kind of recovery? The way that I, I will speak for myself, mm-hmm. the way that I got sober was through understanding that I am not the center of the goddamn universe. Mm. It's just that there's something else besides me, and that may be other people. It can be anything, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's like a spiritual enema, I like to say, in a very crude sort of way. But Carl Jung talked about this, for God's sakes. The great psychiatrist or psychologist, Carl Jung, he actually was the first guy to kind of go, you know what, maybe a spiritual experience might be necessary to get sober. And it's not necessarily a spiritual, like a God, like like, like Michael was saying. Mm -hmm. It's more of that looking inward, Understanding that you are not the center of the universe and understanding more importantly that here's the meaning of life. May I tell you the meaning of life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Finish that thread. Here, here we go. Real yeah. simple. Help yourself so you can help others. That's the key to life. That's it. It's not necessarily because people get hung up on like you got to help others, which is true, but you cannot transmit something that you haven't got in the first place. So get your house in order. See to it that your house in order is right. Mm-hmm. Then you can help others. And that's the end of it. Secure your own oxygen mask. Exactly correct. Clean up your side of the road. It's all those those cliches. But, you know, that's interesting you mentioned the spiritual component of AA and Al-Anon and the 12-step recovery. Yeah. Because I know a lot of agnostics. So I was talking to a friend of mine in the recovery world, and she said, oh, you know, there's a chapter on agnostics. (laughs) We agnostics. In the Alcohol Anonymous book. book, Is that true? Yeah. So it's, it's what you said is interesting. It's not that you have to have a higher power. You have to have a sense that there's something outside of yourself. Explain that. I think this is interesting for people who aren't religiously oriented. I'll tell you what, let me do my 10 minutes on God. Well, ask Michael, because it's his segment. He's heard this before. No, but does he he want you to give 10 minutes to Michael, would you like to give me 10 minutes of your time? Or we could do it on your segment, or give him five minutes, Michael? Well, you want to give me five minutes on God? I can touch on it real quick, and then uh, Jeff can jump in after that. So, uh, yeah, I was actually thinking about that, that we agnostics chapter, even before you were saying that. So that's interesting you brought it up. I have my big book over there. It basically, it be a lot of people get hung up on, like Jeff was saying, God. And there are a lot of people in the AA program that try to plug Christianity and say, I'm not against Christianity, but I am against people pushing it on other people. And that's also common too. And um, basically, uh Right now, I would say, I mean, my higher power is the universe, positive, negative energy, because I know the universe exists. Uh, I grew up a Christian. I went to, and there's also a part in the book that talks about that too, that a lot of people are bitter from their childhood being, you know, you're going to hell if you're not this way and that way. I, I didn't grow up like that, but something about it didn't click with me. Christianity, for some reason, it just never really clicked with me. I'm not, I'm not completely, uh, it's like, I'm not saying that it's not true that Jesus Christ isn't true. I'm just saying, at least at this point, that I do believe like in the, the universe. I started this meditation by Sadhguru uh, about nine months ago. And uh, you breathe in, I'm not the body, I'm not even the mind. That's the mantra you do for about 20 minutes. And I've done that every day or every other day off and on for about nine months. And then I started this new meditation recently and you're in a white room and you breathe in and there's a fire around you when you, and the, when you breathe in, the fire gets a lot bigger. And then when you breathe out, like all the resentment, 
the pain, the fear and everything you imagine that coming out of your mouth in a big cloud of smoke. And then I did that for maybe 10 days. And I started to realize that I started feeling like I could manifest things easier. I don't know how to really describe it. So I'm still on my journey as far as my higher power goes, but a lot of people do struggle with that. But Jeff and I talked about that yesterday, or maybe it was two days ago about, uh, I kind of have like a vision of my higher powers being like a green flame that's like burns inside me. And then that's God, uh, which, you know, God is in all of us. And yeah, so that's my, at this point, at least that's my vision of higher power. You know what? I called. Thank you. That was absolutely beautiful. I really appreciated that. I love him. He's pretty special. I love that guy. He's pretty great. <laughs> okay. Should we let Jeff tell I'll, his? Yeah. He knows this. My God is Dolly Parton. And here's why. It's a true story. So when I was a kid, I was raised evangelical, but I had no connection to God whatsoever. I got out of the church around 16 when I was like, wait, they hate gays? Like, I'm out, done. So I never had a connection to God, never had to, right? Then wife dies, bridge jump, and then all of a sudden, everything changes. Then you start to have that conversation that everybody has. Why, God, did you do this? Because I was raised with the idea of, you know, guardian angels and this and that and and the plan I was raised with the plan. So I looked around and I said, okay, wait a second. So God, if you favor the faithful and you curse the fallen, then you're a capricious dickhead. I do not like that God. That is not my God. So I became an atheist for quite some time. And all of a sudden it hit me that I think the universe pierces the veil for just a second sometimes. And it lights up the path for you and it says you're on the right path. Carl Jung calls these synchronicities. And synchronicities are these, I could go on for days about this, but synchronicities are acausal events. You don't understand why. They're pretty well documented. They're very rare. It's all based on perception. But nevertheless, I've experienced two synchronicities that have been incredibly powerful that have no statistical relevance whatsoever. That being said, the idea behind synchronicities are Jung and the Buddhists called it out and they said, that's a universe lighting the way up for you. So then all of a sudden it hit me, Dolly Parton is my God. Why? Because I envision it, I call it Grandma God or Dolly Parton, but I I like Grandma God. Grandma God is sitting in a rocking chair. Grandma God is rocking back and forth. Grandma God has three babies in her arms and she's cooing with them and they're playing and giving them milk. And then two babies are in front of Grandma God and they're crawling away on the carpet in front of the rocking chair. And Grandma God says, don't go there. I wouldn't do that if I were you. You're going to crap your pants. However, I gave you free will, babies. So if you want to come back, I am here. And the reason I like Grandma God, because it gets around the problem I've always had with divine intervention. Because if we were given free will, then divine intervention negates that exact free will. And the way I think about it sometimes, that perhaps God, universe, whatever you want to say, created it this way intentionally, with heartbreak. Because I imagine God saying, I really, really want to help you all. I want to intervene. But I've set this up that I can't because if you did what I wanted you to, if I intervened, that would be automatons. That's not what I want to create anyway. I want you to find your own path. So it's divine guidance and not divine intervention. That is my thing. Wow. Dolly Parton. (laughs) But it's funny that your grandma was Dolly Parton. I mean, a lot of people's grandma would be like, you know. Betty White. Yeah, there's a better example of Graham, Granny. I'm just Although saying. she was pretty youthful, but still a little bit. I'm just saying. I like that. I like Dolly Parton, personally. Dolly's the greatest, obviously. Yeah, I like Betty White, too. But, you know. That's a great, beautiful image. It's just, it mm. gets around the intervention problem for me. But again, like a lot of this stuff, and just listening to both of you, it's what works for the individual, right? Of course. Like, 
you take the pieces of it that work for you. Hopefully they let you do that, right? Like in many programs and, and hopefully with you guys in the programs you're in that they let you, it sounds like you individuate and self-actualize and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Michael, you went through a lot to get clean. Oh, yeah. Do yeah. you want to? Do you want to? I guess I'll start with. So prescription drugs are like there's a pandemic, obviously. And what's interesting about that is a lot of times when people like I talked about earlier, the drug addict, the drunk that lives under the bridge drinking, you know, out of a paper bag. That's kind of the uh, image that people think when they think drug addict or drunk. But was it Ronald Reagan's wife? Uh, Nancy. She had a drug problem, right? No. A prescription drug problem? No, 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 no. Time out. You're thinking of Betty Ford. Oh, of course. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it was Ford. Uh, I was watching a thing on Ronald Reagan last night, so that jumped into my head. But anyway. um, No, actually, actually, if I may interrupt, if I may interrupt for a heartbeat, don't forget, she had the incredibly effective don't say or just say no program. Oh, that was. was, There you go. There's a punchline. Nancy. Nancy. There's a punchline. Yeah, Betty Ford was the one who had the. Betty Ford's good. Nancy Reagan. (laughs) Anyway. This is a non-controversial podcast. (laughs) Sorry. I know. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Michael. So, I mean, prescription drugs, you know, the Betty Ford Clinic that was started because she got addicted to prescription drugs. So that's been a lot that's been around for a long time at prescription drug addiction, but still it ties into the stigma of the same thing. It's uh, it's like the man under the bridge. And that's always kind of what I looked at drug addicts when I was a kid up until I started becoming addicted to painkillers. So in high school, well, I'll go back before that because addiction always starts in childhood. It's like it starts way before the disease is active. And they teach this in treatment that it's both environmental and biological, right? Is that what it is, Jeff? Well, and, psych- and psychological, technically, throwing this a kind of a threefer, but. Yeah. So once you have the gene and then you go through trauma, then that's kind of a perfect recipe for addiction later on. And uh, if you go through a lot of trauma, uh, as a kid, and you have the gene, then you are much more likely to get it. I'll talk about one story when I was a kid when that was traumatic, that it was kind of a turning point for me and my brother and my parents even too. So this was in the year 2000 when I was 12. My brother and I and my friend, uh, we'd just seen Mission Impossible 2 at the movie theater. And we went home, we were having a sleepover on the floor. So we had our sleeping bags on the floor. And uh, we had just played, I think it was Grand Theft Auto 2, but we had just played it. Then we went to sleep about 5.30 in the morning. There was a, our doorbell started ringing and someone was pounding on the door yelling. And uh, this random guy, no one has seen him since or knows, we don't know his name or anything, ran inside and was yelling that your house is on fire. So we all went outside and within like 10 minutes, the house was burned down to the ground. And at that point, I was in an elementary school that I loved. I was on a soccer team uh, that my dad coached and had best friends. One lived next door. And uh, basically, it was already at a transition period. You know, puberty at 12, when you're going into middle school, people start changing friends anyway. So that was already a tough time. And then the whole house was gone. We have to leave, move and live into an apartment while the same house it's another house is getting built in the same exact spot. It wasn't just a period where it was the whole, it, it was like a whole lot of things happened at the same time. And then when we went back to the house, I kind of expected us to still have the 
same friends, but it just wasn't that way. Uh, so I think it hit the, my dad stopped coaching the soccer team, went to a different soccer team that was abusive. And then from then on, I was extremely depressed. I believe I needed antidepressants back then, but I wasn't on anything. So for about from 2000 to about 2006, I was in an extreme, extreme depression. What was the age range? You said 2000 to 2006. 12 to about 18, oh, seven. Well, I, I would say uh, mm. 17 or 18. But there was something that happened when uh, I think this was about 2004. I forgot about the story. So I had a cough and I just got a new car. And my uh, doctor prescribed me uh, Tocinex, which is hydrocodone, like liquid hydrocodone. And just for that one moment, or those couple hours of taking that, so I was depressed for those four years and then really depressed for those two years after that. Just for that one little window of time, I felt okay. And that always stuck in the back of my head. And then I went on to had this, uh, I have scoliosis and I just, I had a little bit of back pain, nothing that a doctor should have given me opiates for. Then I got hooked on that for several years and then I just kind of snowballed. Wait, nothing they should have given it to you for, but that they did give it to you. Right. You went in because you had pain? Yeah, I just, I had back pain. Uh, my back started hurting like when I was in high school and I just, I went to the doctor and just started getting prescribed. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunately very common. But right? I thought by that time in the mid 2000s that they weren't doing that anymore. Am I wrong? Are we talking like opioids, right? Uh, was it it started off with tramadol, which was, oh, oh yeah. I'll go back for a second. So mm -hmm. tramadol, it's considered a narcotic now. Back then, it was considered, I don't know what it was considered. It was just like narcotic light. I mean, eventually, yeah, I started getting prescribed other things. But I actually, I mean, I had around that time, I had started dabbling with, uh, I didn't go to, I didn't drink in high school. I didn't smoke weed or cigarettes or anything. But just for this one area of prescription drugs, I thought that for this one small area, area i thought prescription drugs was okay because it was in my mind i had it i had it set that i could do anything around this time even if it wasn't prescribed to me if i would get it from my friends or whatever that it was okay to take prescription drugs and i would stay away from alcohol i would stay away from i would start getting into fentanyl sucking the fentanyl patches taking hydrocodone and oxycontin and then i started snorting oxycontin and then i started uh, taking uh, like hydrocodone all the time and but in the, at the same time, I was still getting prescribed tramadol. And then I started getting prescribed Soma from a doctor, which is uh, kind of like a barbiturate. You know what Soma is, Jeff? It's like, yeah, uh, it's yeah, yeah, it's, I do. it's like, it's kind of like quaaludes. I think it's like my friend had told me it's like quaaludes on, um, he called it junior quaaludes, but <laughs> that's one of my drugs of choice is Soma. So I had this doctor who's giving me yeah, soma, tramadol, and then I, I had a hernia surgery, and then that sparked it, uh, me to take a Percocet. So it was all sorts of things. So you were off and to then, the races. Um, you were off to the races. Yeah, and then I, but I was, the thing is, I was, uh, I was not smoking, I was still not smoking weed. Like my friends would say, you're taking all this other stuff, but you won't smoke weed. And I said, no, because that's an illegal drug. But <laughs> that's how much I lied to myself. Unfortunately, that was like the very beginning of my addiction. Uh, I started off with a lot of people start with, they smoke weed, they drink for sometimes 10, 20 years before they move on to something else. But mine was going from being horribly depressed to taking all these opiates within a really 
really short amount of time. And the feeling behind all of that was I finally felt okay. Looking back on it, I'm surprised that I had not overdosed or anything. I mean, especially during that period, but that's kind of how it started. It started with a bang like that. May I just jump in for one thing? First of all, I didn't know what a crazy cocktail you had going on. But second of all, this is such a great point about the story that you just told, is that the addict brain does everything it can to maintain the addiction, so much so that you said, I'm not going to smoke weed because that's illegal. Because granted, what you were taking was legal, everything else. But that's such the addict brain to just completely twist everything. Yeah, I mean, as far as like, I vaguely remember my friends saying something along those lines, but that was, so that was like 2007. And then I finally had smoked weed. And then um, when I went to college, I had gotten away from the source of being able to take uh, hydrocodone and fentanyl patches. And uh, I would suck on the fentanyl patches because like a lot of times people now, as you know, everyday people die from fentanyl. But what we would do is we would have fentanyl and put it under the patches that go on people for, you know, cancer patients. Uh, that's what it killed Prince, I think. Yep. Yeah. yeah. How did you not, how did you do that with fentanyl? It's supposed to be so incredibly potent. I mean, I wasn't shooting it but i was what would happen was i would my friend would give me some and i would take the patch and put it under my tongue and it would get into your membrane i don't know what you call that the membranes in your mouth and soak in and then it would hit you really hard but then if you were taking something like a soma or a percocet at the same time it was 10 times as hard but then fast forward a second i went to college at the University of Kansas. And I, for a little bit of time, or actually long stretches of time, I had gotten away from taking the fentanyl and the hydrocodone, the Percocet. I would take it when I could get it every now and then, but I was relying on the Soma and the uh, Tramadol from the doctor. And then uh, I'll never forget something happened when I took Adderall for the first time. And that opened up a whole different a uh, whole nother door because uh, a lot of times people say their kids are prescribed Adderall or Ritalin and Adderall is like an amphetamine salt, you know, related to methamphetamine. And that was, I was so used to downers. And when I took that, it opened up another universe of addiction for me. And I started taking that and then I would stay up for, I think my record is I stayed up for five days on it. And, what age were uh, you at this point when you stayed up for five days on Adderall? It was like 2008. So that was, I don't know, 20. And who uh, gave you the Adderall? Doctor, right? Psychiatrist? No, I didn't get that from a doctor. I got that from my friend. And then I had started, you know, smoking weed. And but the, the whole thing was, uh, I would throughout this whole time, I would, I would still feel bad if I had smoked weed or even drank. But with the Adderall and the opiates and the Valium and all that stuff, I didn't feel as bad about that because it was a prescription. Well, and that's the danger of all that, right? The danger of having prescribed medication is that you start to think to yourself, because it's prescribed, it's okay. And then there's that concept of, I can probably do some more. And I can probably do some more because it's under the umbrella of being quote unquote legal. Right. Yeah, that's... What a story. How do you get off of that? What made you decide to get clean? I didn't want to get clean for a long time. My parents and family and friends were really, they saw that there was a problem and they wanted me to. But there were a lot of stories that, or there were a lot of instances throughout those years in college. So 
freshman from 2007 to to when I graduated was 2011. There was just one series of events after the next that it became really obvious to everyone around me that I had a drug problem. During this period of time, like when I was a freshman, I had it under control for about six months. And uh, I spent the rest of my addiction trying to get back to that one place again. Trying to get back to what place? To the period of time when I was a freshman in college, like about six months, I had it. uh, Yeah, I I could take me. My doctor had prescribed me eight pills a day. I was taking six pills a day. I felt better, but there was... There was one time towards the end of that or something that happened after I started taking more again was uh, I got flagged by a pharmacy and the pharmacy because I was I was constantly eventually after that period I was I was going to a doctor and my one doctor he was giving me plenty of pills that wasn't enough and I was starting to get it from other people other sources and that wasn't enough and then uh, once I started to see more than one doctor uh, even though at the time it was tramadol I did get our pharmacy, uh, I called them and I wanted to get a refill and uh, at a different pharmacy that I was used to. And they said something about, I forgot what he said exactly, but he just said, you picked up another prescription for this at, a, at this other pharmacy on this day. We're not going to fill it for five days. And I was horrified because at that point I couldn't get anything else. And I went through withdrawal and by the end, it was really hard going to school that way. But by the end of that period, I ended up feeling better at the end of the, the five days. Like I finally, I was vomiting and shaking and stuff the whole time. But then eventually about withdrawal lasts about three to five days. So about, I'd say about four days, I felt better. I fell back to my normal self again. And I had a thought like, well, maybe just don't go pick up the prescription. But I ended up doing that. So yeah. You know, were you doctor shopping or just like pharmacy shopping? Um, at that point, was it was a doctor shopping to some degree. Then, like I would, I would go to one doctor. I ended up doctor shopping. Yes, I would go to one doctor, and then I would go to a different one, and then try to have that prescription filled from a long time ago at a certain like. I, I tried to like work this system quite a bit, but I, I did have one doctor that was that was she would give me pretty much whatever I wanted. Did you did you feel that you were an addict? No, I thought look, I actually I've thought about that quite a bit. I remember thinking that I was reliant on it, but no, I didn't look at myself that way. Who would? I mean, you and I both know this, buddy. The first time that you say I have a problem is half the battle, right? So calling yourself, it's when you identify with I have an addiction and I need to help with it because it's unmanageable at this point. That's the that's the meat of it all. That's when you live in acceptance that you've got a problem and then you can find the change attached to it. That's dialectical behavioral therapy in a, in a nutshell. It's one of the great... Wait, say it again. What's dialectical behavior? It's called dialectical behavioral therapy. Uh-huh. And what it is is it's... A dialectic is something that is uh, opposite of each other, essentially. Right. Two right. things that exist at the same time. Exactly. So this concept is the idea of acceptance in the Buddhist sense of, I see what's in front of me, I, I want to know what I can change about it or what I can't change about it, and then find what you can change and then change it. And to me, that is the key to a lot, if not everything, quite frankly, because when you live in acceptance of everything and you see it for what it is, and people think of acceptance as like signing off on something, some bullshit, that is not the case. It is to see what's in front of you, see what you can do about it, and change it. And that is precisely what this man over here that I'm staring at and talking to did. We say it again, acceptance is you see what's in front of you, mm-hmm. and then what? 
It's the idea that you are present, basically. But you can't change everything. You change the things you can. That's that Alan on AA thing, right? 100%. Accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. You can't change other people's behavior. Nope. Michael, you are very inspirational as well. I mean, everything we know about addiction, that's the hardest stuff to come off of. Oh, yeah. Isn't that right? It ain't easy. The stuff he was on. Michael, when you got off all that stuff, how was your back pain? Just out of curiosity. Ironically, it was better because a lot of times people don't realize that with opiates is it actually makes in the overall, it makes your pain much worse if you're on it for a long period of time. So let's just say that if you start taking, let's just say your leg hurts, you start taking Percocet. Eventually, if you're if you're on Percocet long enough, your leg will hurt much, much more unless you take Percocet set and then it, it goes back to baseline again and then when you you start developing a tolerance or don't take it then it starts to inflame it's like a wildfire it inflames again and then you have to keep watering it down with pills and i got up to maybe over 30 pills a day oh 30 uh, like, i can't believe you had 30 pills 30 a day, a day? Uh, yeah like you had- i mean when i could have i mean when i could take it so my doctor would prescribe me about or she would prescribe me the max amount eight pills a day and if I'm talking about if I would take, you know, 20 of those for a few days and then I would take, you know, Percocet also and hydrocodone and Adderall and stuff, it would be about 30 a day. And then I would start to realize that, let's just say my prescription, I would get my prescription refilled, let's just say the first of the month. And I would have 30 days to take on average, I would, I would need to take eight pills a day. But if I'm taking 20 pills in the beginning, and then I'm taking, you know, other pills on the side, and then I start to be like, okay, so I can take six pills. I have enough to take six pills a day. I have enough to take five a day. And then eventually I get down to I either have to refill it early or go to another doctor or I can cover up the withdrawal with alcohol or you know whatever else which doesn't work that well but well and you know I've heard with opioid and op- is it opioid opiates. or opiates? opiates with opiates yeah. that people end up on the streets getting heroin right because you can't the pills sometimes get stopped by the medical professionals or the pharmacies and then that's when the yeah, illegal yeah. stuff starts happening right and you know sometimes Adderall leads to meth out on the streets. Uh, I mean, well tell be. me if I'm wrong. I don't want to sound like a... I don't know about Adderall necessarily in that connection to it, but I do know that it's definitely a stimulant. Right, but what I mean is you. sometimes sometimes the stuff that's prescribed eventually stops being prescribed and the person ends up out on the streets getting an illegal version of some facsimile, right? It can't happen. And did that yeah. happen? That didn't happen with you, Michael, because you weren't you weren't cut off by the medical professionals. So like I went to finally went on a trip in Spain and um, my brother was studying abroad there. My parents were there. And actually, pres- a lot of prescription drugs are over the counter in Spain as opposed to the stuff that you could get here that you have to get prescribed. It was controlled. You can just walk into a, a store and get it there. I didn't know that before I got there. But then when I was there, I was really shocked. Then I ended up having a seizure uh, while I was swimming in the ocean. My mom was Holy to the right. Because you took too much? Yeah. That was the first time that I realized that, and my family realized that I really had a problem. They knew it before to some degree, but I had a seizure while I was swimming. Uh, my brother, my dad pulled me out. And um, it was the first time that I realized I had a problem too. I went to the hospital and I got out and uh, started doing it all over again right away. I mean, and then eventually about a year ago, I went to uh, this pain management. It's kind of a joke looking back on it because I was still at that point, I was 
somewhat in denial. My parents were somewhat in denial. And then I went like, okay, he's taking these pills for his back. He needs to go to a uh, pain management clinic to work with his back pain. When I was there, I told my story to the owner and he suggested Suboxone. It's called harm reduction. That's like the new methadone. Mm -hmm. And I agree with Suboxone to the extent that you take it for three days or five days or whatever to get off the opiates. But if you're just on it for indefinitely for, you know, two years, five years or whatever, you just have another addiction to that, which is actually more, it's actually a much harder to take Suboxone than it is even fentanyl or hydrocodone or whatever, because it gets into your bone marrow, just like methadone does. I believe there are only two opiates that get into your bone marrow. I think it's methadone and I think it's suboxone. I think it's only those two. But why do they get into your bone marrow? Those are the ones that are harm mitigators, right? I don't know. They're supposed to be. They're supposed uh, to be. Okay. But uh, so you're saying even heroin doesn't? I don't think so. No. It's oh, interesting. But I could be wrong. I don't so think so. So you took Suboxone. You took that for how long? I think I was on it for maybe six months. And then it started where, so I was on that. And then I couldn't stop dripping. And supposedly that was going to be the solution. Once I would start taking Suboxone, I wouldn't take Adderall. I wouldn't smoke weed or drink or anything on the side. And uh, I kept doing that. So I went to treatment and they gave me suboxone there the average dose for suboxone uh is about say two milligrams to eight milligrams on average because i had a back pain i convinced the doctor to give me 24 milligrams and i was really addicted to it i ended up going back home to kansas i think i was there for three days and i drank then i went back to the same treatment center and when i came back i was part of the same group of people and you have a group that like you talk about your past and you go your whole timeline and traumas and everything. They were really cold towards me and I wasn't really sure why. And then uh, the doctor there had gone on vacation and I had another doctor and uh, she took me off. I think it was 24 milligrams to eight milligrams in a really short amount of time. And that's really irresponsible. You have doctors that they go the other way too. They're, uh, it's not just the doctors that give you pills to get you hooked on things. It's like once you are hooked on them, you would also have doctors that look at addicts and even though they're doctors, they're still buy into the whole stigma and they look down on them and they say, you're only getting this. I'm not giving you more. Like, and that's so much so that they'll take you off with medications that you'll go into horrible, horrific withdrawals just because they have that viewpoint where if you had a responsible doctor, they would say, okay, we'll do, we'll wean you off slowly rather than, you know, sitting across from them like you're, you know, a piece of shit, basically. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that. No, uh, you are. You are supposed to say that. We're, we're, we're speaking the truth. Okay. I'm so humbled and grateful for your participation. And I really have, it's been an honor to hear your story, part one, because we still have part two, maybe mm -hmm. even part three. Thank you for having me. Thank you. See you, buddy.